Today's text is Revelation 4. That's on page 1917 in your pew Bibles. Now hear God's word from Revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Once I was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it. And the one seated had an appearance like jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From this throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Toward the center, near the throne, were four living creatures covered with eyes in the front and the back. The first living creature looked like a lion. The second looked like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth, like a flying eagle. Each of these four living creatures had six wings, covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures gave glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, of all glory, honor, and power, for you created all things. By your will they were created and have their being. You are worthy, our Lord and our God, The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Thank you for the reading of God's Word this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, as we continue our series on the book of Revelation. 
Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, if you were offered a two-minute peek into heaven, what do you think you would see? What do you think you would see? I actually hear the answer to that question, even unsolicited, it seems many times a week. I hear answers that have to do with people's loved ones. Oh, I'd love to see my father again, or I'd love to see my mother, or my son, or my favorite pet. We seem to relate heaven to the people and the things that we have loved and lost. Here in Revelation chapter 4, as we just heard, John actually does get a peek into heaven. And what he sees there is something quite different than what we might long to see. John doesn't see his long-lost collie. John doesn't even see his long-lost brother James. What John sees is worship. Worship. Worship like he's never seen it before. There are fellow worshipers there, and in fact, that crowd of worshipers will continue to grow and grow and grow through these two chapters in the midst of the book of Revelation. But those worshipers, they're, it's, all, it's like they're all wearing masks because they're somewhat unrecognizable. And there are songs as well being sung, but we don't know the tunes. We don't know if they're, if they're Genevan hymns or Getty compositions or if they have a little gospel spice like the song we sang for our gathering this morning. But there are songs of praise. And there are offerings in this chapter as well, but not quite the kind that you give online. John looks into the throne room of heaven and he sees worship. What I'd like to do with you this morning for just a few minutes is, is look and see what John sees and try to break down this picture of, of heaven, this picture of worship for a while. And I would I'd like to look with you or like to look with you at three things in particular. First, where worship begins. Second, where worship grows rich. And finally, when worship becomes costly. Let's look at those three things. First of all, where worship begins. John takes a look into heaven, and the first thing that he sees is a throne. A throne. Now, thrones are not really a part of our lives, are they? They don't have much to do with our lives. They might be present in some of the entertainment that we, that we have around us, like the Game of Thrones or, or the Lord of the Rings, which is full of kings and thrones, or, or maybe even some video games. But, but all of that is pretty much fantasy. Thrones are not part of our everyday experience any longer. But in John's day, a throne was synonymous with ultimate authority. A throne meant a realm, some territory or jurisdiction over which someone ruled. John sees in heaven the throne which stands at the very center of the universe, at the center of all things, which is the realm of that throne, at the center of everything that we know stands a throne. A throne. 
Now, when I think of something having a center, I tend to think of, of machines. I tend to think of things that revolve, that go, that go around. I think of the blades of a fan or electric motors or even the old turntables we used to have, right? That they're coming back. Um, you put LPs on and they spin around, right? And they made music. In the center, or if the center of any of those machines is off somehow, what happens? The thing spins out of control. If the center is off, it spins out of control. It doesn't work. Think of, think of a wheel, perhaps. Think of a trailer wheel. All right? A trailer wheel has a hub, the center. And on the hub sits a bearing. And the bearing spins in a circle, and it allows the wheel to spin in a circle. But let's say this particular trailer is a boat trailer. And you back this trailer into the water quite frequently, and then you pull it out, and, and a little bit of water seeps into that bearing, unbeknownst to you. And while it's sitting in your garage, that bearing begins to rust. And then one day, you pull your trailer out, and you say, I'm going to hit the road and do a little fishing. And so you take off down the road, but that rust has ruined the bearing, right? It's blown out the bearing, and as that wheel spins, pretty soon it's not spinning in a, a circle any longer, but it's spinning in an oval and that bearing begins to bounce, and the wheel begins to bounce, and your trailer begins to bounce, and, well, let's just say you don't get to go fishing that day. That's what can happen, right, when you lose your center. And life is like that. John says, at the very center of all things is a throne. Throne. And when we lose our center, in this life, what happens? Life spins out of control. We're ruined. The universe has a center. To some of us, that's news. But there's more news here. There's another surprise, and that is that the center is not us. The center of all things is not us. Life does not revolve around me. It doesn't revolve around my happiness or my dreams or my fulfillment. Believe it or not, you and I are not the center. Look at verse 2. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. The throne at the center of all things is occupied it's occupied. There's someone sitting on that throne. And to try and take the place of that someone by putting something else or someone else on that throne, what does it do? It throws the whole thing off and things spin wildly out of control. What I think we need to take notice of in this chapter, in this vision of John, is that the universe, right, the center of all things, what, this throne room of heaven is not anthrocentric. It's theocentric. This whole scene is theocentric. In other words, it's not man-centered. It's not woman-centered. It's not human-centered at all. It is God-centered. God-centered. All of reality, even though we can't always see it, is God-centered. There's another way to see this here. Just look with me for a moment at the four living creatures who are always before the throne, right? 
These creatures remind us of the seraphim of Isaiah 6, of the cherubim of Ezekiel 1. What they are is heavenly creatures with wings, and they're covered with eyes. In other words, they see more than humans do, right? It's like they're teachers. They have eyes in the back of their heads. If you have teachers like that, they always knew what was going on. Their sight is not limited. In fact, they have insight. And what they see plainly with their unobstructed view is God. He is the center. But notice that even among these full-time worshipers, even among these representative worshipers, humans are a mere minority. Right? Only one of them has a face like a man. The others look like a lion and an ox and an eagle. What we have here are, are angelic beings who represent the mightiest and most noble of God's creatures. They represent the wild animals, the lion, the domestic animals, the ox. They represent the birds, the eagle, and they represent human beings. But notice the human beings are not the center. And all of these creatures are worshiping, and their worship is, is natural. Their worship is reflexive, right? Remember when you went to the doctor as a kid, and the doctor hit your knee with a hammer, and, and what happened? Your, lead, your knee jumped, your leg jumped, right? It's a reflex. You can't help it. You ever think of the, cre the, the worship of the creation in those kinds of terms? That the creation worships God naturally. It's a reflex, Poets often talk that way. Think of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glories of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. You hear what the psalmist is saying? He's saying that every star sparkles its worship. Every brook babbles its worship. Every lion that roars, every leaf that burns red, every wave that crashes the shore is shouting its worship to God, its creator. By simply doing what these things were created to do, they worship God as a little rabbit munches on grass and makes that funny face, right? As the tuna fish swims, Whatever those creatures are, as they do what they were created to do, they are offering their worship to God. Richard Baukamp describes the four living creatures this way. He says, their existence is entirely fulfilled in the worship of God. Their existence is entirely fulfilled in the worship of God. They're totally consumed by it. There's nothing left. Everything that they are, everything that they have, everything that they do is done in worship to God. The creation worships naturally. It's reflex. It has no choice. There's one creature, however, that does have a choice. The minority creatures in the scene, the human beings. And when humans lose their center, what happens? They throw off the whole business. 
They throw off everything. Everything spins out of control. We know this from Romans 8, right? The earth groans under the burden of supporting restless people who have lost their center. People who need more from the present moment than creation can supply throw the whole business spinning toward destruction. That's what Romans 8 is about. How that creation longs for restoration. It longs to be made new, so it longs for the restoration of human beings. So what's the solution? What's the remedy to all of this? Well, the remedy is getting worship right. It's putting God back at the center. That's where worship begins, at the throne. Now let's, let's look at where worship grows rich, okay? The worshipers in God's throne room sing of God's inherent qualities. If we were writing a confession this morning, like the Belgic Confession, we might call these the attributes of God. They sing of God's attributes. They acclaim Him for one as holy, holy, holy. He's beyond us. He's unique, right? They also proclaim him in the second song in this text as creator, the source of all things. He is the one that we depend on. We cannot exist without him. But there are other attributes of God that are mentioned in this text, although much more subtly. For instance, there are signs here that this God is also a covenant God. A God who is not a solitary being, but a God who at his very core delights in relationship. He is a God who is hospitable. He invites people into relationship and he says there's always room for more. There's always room for more. And this God knows what relationship requires. It requires promise-making and promise-keeping. It requires a covenant-maker. Where do we see this? Where is God mentioned as a covenant-maker? Well, the obvious place is probably in verse 3, where we hear that a rainbow encircles the throne. Right? What's the rainbow all about? Well, the rainbow in Scripture is an allusion to God's unfailing commitment to His creation. Remember what he said, I will never destroy the earth again as with a flood. I will never destroy it again. Rather, there will come a day when I will make all things new. I will make this creation new. But there are <clears throat> other hints as well that God is a covenant God. We heard it in verse 5 as Steve read. From the throne came flashes of lightning. Peals of thunder and rumblings. These words come out of Exodus chapter 19. They are manifestations of God's presence. Remember there in Exodus 19, God comes to Mount Sinai to meet with his people. Why did he come to Mount Sinai? To make a covenant with them. To tell them that I will be your God forever and ever and ever. And through you, I will bring all peoples and tongues and nations and families to myself. That was the covenant. And it's alluded to right here in Revelation. There's also another hint of that covenant in verse 3. Where we read that the one on the throne had the appearance of Jasper 
And we heard ruby this morning. It's sometimes translated carnelian. Those two stones are also mentioned in Exodus 28 and also Exodus 32. They're part of the high priest's uniform that he would wear into the most holy of holy place. They're part of his breastplate. The breastplate of the high priest contained 12 stones, one for each of the the tribes of Israel. And the names of each of those tribes were to be inscribed on that breastplate. The first stone mentioned in Exodus is carnelian or ruby. And the last stone mentioned is jasper. Sort of the two end stones. They are to represent all of the 12 stones. They stood for all 12 tribes. In Exodus, it says this, Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the children of Israel over his heart as a continual memorial before the Lord. That was Exodus. In Revelation, John is saying that God carries the names of his own children over his heart. The one seated on the throne at the center of all of reality carries your name over his heart. You know what that's like, right? We do that kind of thing too. We all know grandparents, right, who for the life of them can't figure out how to dial a number on their cell phone, but they can whip that phone out and show you pictures of their grandchildren with no problem at all. By the way, have I shown you my grandson lately? Um, I, won't, I won't go there, okay? But I do that sometimes. We all do that. We carry the people that we love close to our hearts. And isn't it cool what John is saying here? That the Creator God, the, the source of all things, the holy, holy, holy God who is above and beyond His creation, This very God is also the God who carries our photos in his heart. He's a covenant God. He's a a gracious God. Now, why is this so important? Well, because of the description that's given to God in in one of the songs here. In verse 8, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and was and is to come. And is to come. This is a title that we hear often in the book of Revelation. It's given to God, it's given to Christ. It seems to be a riff on the name of God himself, the name God gives himself, also in the book of Exodus, I am who I am, right? And that title, I am who I am, is, is sort of a takeoff on the verb to be. And it means, I am, <clears throat> I was, And I always will be. It's saying basically that God will always be the same and he will always exist. But when John describes this God, he he tweaks that just a little bit. And, And he proclaims God to be not so much the timeless God or the God who always exists, but he claims him to be the God who is coming. There is a future to God, he is coming. But it's not just God's future that we're talking about. It's our future. God is the one who is coming. In other words, his existence will one day intersect with our existence. We cannot escape it. 
God is the one who is coming. Now, what will that coming be like? Well, remember what we heard in verse 5. What happened on Mount Sinai? There were rumblings and peals of thunder and lightning, the manifestations of God's presence. These are signs of judgment. Nobody, remember, could, could go up on the mountain or even get near it for fear of their lives. Sinful human beings cannot get near a holy God without risk of, of the destruction of their very souls. God is holy. And because we are sinful, His coming brings judgment. Whenever I think of the coming of God, the picture that I... I the picture that comes to mind is the picture of a spaceship re-entering orbit or re-entering the atmosphere of, of the earth. Remember the, the film uh, Apollo 13? What happens when the, the spacecraft hits hits our, what did I just called it, I lost the word. Hits our atmosphere, what happens? Thank you, by the way. Um, what happens is there are sparks and there are flames. There's thunder. And the whole thing begins to shake until it feels like the, the heat shields themselves are going to blow off, right? When that spaceship enters the atmosphere, nothing else can happen. There is resistance, natural resistance. And if that spaceship is ever going to get home, those things are going to happen. Well, the same is actually true in the book of Revelation as Revelation portrays the coming of our God. As God draws nearer to us, as his kingdom approaches us, we see these judgments of God growing in intensity in proportion to his nearness. As he comes nearer, the intensity of the judgments grow. I want you to look at how this is portrayed. We just read about God's throne room in, in chapter 4, right? We read about f flashes of, of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, those three things. But as God draws nearer, we'll see that that line repeats, but it also increases, right? And so with the seventh seal, when the seventh seal is opened in chapter 8, we read about peals of thunder and lightning and uh, rumblings, but we also get an earthquake now. And then with the seventh trumpet, a little later in chapter 11, we get flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and the earthquake. And now you get heavy hail added to that. And then with the seventh bowl in chapter 16 come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And this time you get a violent earthquake and huge hailstones like we've never seen before. The whole thing increases in intensity. As God draws near, as his kingdom comes, a sinful world cannot help but resist. And the sparks of judgment fly. It can be no other way. But friends, here is the good news. Here is why, here's why it's so important that we see this as the covenant God also. God is holy. God is the creator. And he's reclaiming the creation for himself, but he is also a gracious covenant God. And in that covenant, what has he promised? He's promised not to destroy the creation again, but to renew it. 
And in that covenant, he's promised not to destroy his people, but to make them as many as the sands on the seashore and as many as the stars in the sky. And friends, that's our hope. The God who is to come is our hope. He's not something we fear. He's not a God that we fear. We long for his coming. See, the God who came to Israel, who came first to Israel, came not in judgment, but in covenant mercy. And the God who came to you and me came not in judgment, but in self-sacrifice, in mercy. He came fulfilling the covenant in Jesus Christ. He is a gracious God. And when you understand the covenant, when you understand how much God gave up, how much he paid to keep that covenant with us, that's when worship begins to grow deep. That's when you begin to understand that this God is not to be feared, but desired, longed for. He is to be worshipped. Understanding what this covenant cost our God. And yet he was faithful. Finally, when does worship grow costly? The four living creatures who are around the throne are not the only creatures worshiping in this text, are they? There are also 24 elders. The 24 elders represent the people of God. Okay? The, 12, um, the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 apostles, you put them together, you get the 24, the foundation of the church. Here we see the church, the true church, engaged in true worship. I want you to note something about these 24 elders, though. For one, they're seated on thrones. Second, they're dressed in white. And third, they're wearing crowns. They're seated on thrones, dressed in white, they're wearing crowns. Where does that come from? The last three letters to the seven churches, Jesus promises to those who overcome that he will give them a seat with him on his throne. They will walk with him, dressed in white, and no one would ever take away their crown. And the crown here in the Greek is the, is the Stephanos crown. In other words, this was a reward. When you ran a race and you were the victor, this was the crown you got. It's not a diadem or a royal authoritative crown. It's a crown of victory. These 24 elders... They represent the ones who have overcome. These are the ones who have been faithful to Christ and to his God unto death. Now look at verse 10 with me for a moment. The 24 elders, this is what they do in worship. They lay down their crowns before the throne. And they say, you are worthy, our Lord and our God. Why do they do that? Why do they lay down their crowns? Remember what we said about worship for the four living creatures was not a choice, it just came naturally. But for humans, it is a choice. Well, these are humans who have made their choice. Last week I mentioned that the main message really in, in the letters to the seven churches was a message of be faithful. 
Be faithful to Christ. Don't compromise your faith in any way. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And what will happen for those who overcome? You will be rewarded. Well, imagine hearing that message from John. Okay? Imagine that you are part of the church in John's day, and he comes to you, he comes to your church with that message. Be faithful. <clears throat> be faithful. Don't compromise. Be faithful all the way to death. You're facing persecution. You're facing being ostracized by your friends and, and business associates. And John says, don't compromise. Be faithful. It'll be worth it one day. Friends, the persuasiveness of a message like that depends a whole lot on who from and when you receive that message. Who from and when. Okay? Imagine you are trying, or imagine you're about to go on your first roller coaster ride ever. Okay? You're a little bit nervous. Um, there are lots of other first-timers in the line with you waiting, and they're all telling you how great this ride is going to be. It's going to be the best time you've ever had in your life. This, this ride is like, you're going to be stunned by this thing. It's going to be the greatest. Those aren't the reports that you want to hear, are they? Or I should say, those are not the people you want to hear from. And that's not the time you want to hear. If it's your first ride, you would rather be on the other side of the tracks as people are disembarking from the ride, and you want to hear those first-time riders say, this was the best ride ever, or you want to see them throwing up in the bushes. That's the report you want because those people actually know something. What's going on here in chapter 4? Who are these 24 elders? It said they are the overcomers. They are the ones who have already given up their lives. They are the ones who are giving their thrones to the one on the throne, or their crowns to the one on the throne. What are they saying as they do that? Why are they laying their crowns before the throne? Well, friends, what they are saying is, <clears throat> this was the best ride ever. You won't regret it. What they are saying is, this was worth it. He is worth it. He is worthy. He is worthy. He's worthy of every sacrifice I have ever made. He's worthy of every promotion I never got because I refused to sacrifice my family. He is worthy of not being published because I refused to deny Christ. He is worthy of all the time I spent on my knees in prayer, no matter how silly I may have looked to the movers and the shakers of this world. He's worthy of all the time that I gave, all the money that I gave, all the leisure that I gave up, 
He is worthy. That's what they're saying. He is worthy of this crown. He is worthy of my life. He is worthy of everything that I have and everything that I am. Remember what the four living creatures, what we said about them? Their existence is entirely fulfilled in the worship of God. Well, that's what the 24 elders are saying. They're affirming that same thing. Our existence, too, is entirely fulfilled in the worship of God. Everything I can muster to give back to Him. He is worthy of it all. Nothing better that I could do with all that I have and all that I am and to offer it to God in worship. Friends, worship is costly. Maybe not how we always do it, but true worship is costly. Because there's a rhythm to worship, isn't there? God gives to us and we give back to Him. Like the old hymn we used to sing, We give thee but thine own. God gives us material wealth and we offer a measure of that back to Him. God gives us His love and and we offer a fraction of our love in, in return to Him. God gives us salvation and for that we offer Him a life of bearing fruit. He gives to us, we give to Him. He gives us a crown and we give it back to Him. But friends, always remember that the crown that we place at His feet didn't cost nearly as much as the crown He placed on our heads. Never forget that. The cost of that crown that God placed on our heads was the very life of Jesus Christ, of God Himself. And incredibly, his life is worth the salvation of all humanity, of every tribe and nation and tongue. And his life was worth the restoration of the entire creation. That's how much it was worth. And yet his life, in some incredible way, says that our meager, our miserable, our paltry lives Lives that are all twisted and misshapen and turned around and off-center and out of whack. Our measly lives are somehow, in some way, of immeasurable worth to the one who sits on the throne. And as we'll hear next week, and to the Lamb. And because of that, we lay down our crowns, and we say, no, you are worthy, O God. You are worth it all. Let's pray. Lord God, to you and to the Lamb, we offer you our crowns. We offer you everything that we have and everything that we are to say that you are worthy. You are worth it all. You are God, our Redeemer, our Creator, 
the one who will make all things new, our Lord. You are worth everything, and we offer it all to you in worship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.